out. All right. You might have noticed while we were singing um, Beloved Hymn that there was a lyric that you probably, anytime there's a lyric change, you stumble over it, right? Because you're, you're conditioned towards knowing the lyrics. And we changed the lyric of Come, Come Thou Fount. Used to say, Oh, by grace, how great a debtor. We changed it because we are not debtors to grace. We were debtors to grace. Grace would cease to be grace. In fact, if you want proof, Colossians chapter 2 talks about how he has taken the full book of the law, consisting of all of your iniquities, and he's nailed it to a tree, and he's canceled out. And you are no longer a debtor because of grace. Is that a beautiful truth this morning, family? Amen? Amen. Um, I had a, a word to share with you guys that uh, I don't want to say that it was a prophetic word. It's just a word that's been on my, my heart. So we'll just call it a word that's come to me in prayer um, before we get into our message. Only be a second, but my heart to share. We need to fight and we need to pray during these early stages of our church not to become an inward-focused people, which would be so easy to do. We're looking at a passage of Scripture that is mostly about our relating to one another as a church, but we need to always remember the lost and remember that God has called us to be a missionary people to this community. Maintaining a focus on the lost is not going to take away from our gelling as a body, it's not going to take away from our focus on Christ. In fact, I have never felt closer to my brothers and sisters in Christ than we are joined arm in arm reaching those who do not know Jesus with the Gospel. Because it reminds us of the Gospel. Something that we need to be reminded of each day. It reminds us of the Gospel, which is the thing that binds us together. That's why we're one family already. Just weeks in, we're one family, and we were before we even met the first time. How cool is that? Because there's a Gospel that binds us together. It reminds us of the mission of Jesus who came to seek and save that which was lost. It reminds us that there are people out there who are heading towards a Christless eternity, and it takes the things that we can become fixated on and it puts them into focus and it helps us not to overfixate on things that should not matter. I said when I first started planting churches that preaching about having a gospel-driven uh, passion for Christ, reaching the lost, was not just something we were going to do when we were 10 people in my living room waiting to outgrow meeting at a house, but it would be something that I would preach on all the time for the rest of my life. I don't care if this place had to have seven services because we couldn't fit anymore. That still wouldn't even touch the amount of people that need to know Jesus in this community. And may we never forget that, family. If we ever forget that and our, and our focus become myopic and inward, we lose focus of the mission that our Savior came to do to reclaim those who are His. Amen? So before um, we open in a word, I'm going to pray that God would stoke that passion and we would begin to see people that do not know Jesus be transformed 
transformed by the gospel right in front of our very eyes. And I pray that you share that same passion. I pray that you bleed that passion. I pray that you cry over that passion. I don't know when the last time is that you actually shed tears for the lost, but I pray that our eyes would not be dry as a congregation as we consider those who need to hear the hope of the gospel of Jesus that he has so graciously entrusted as a gift to us. Amen? Father, I pray that you would help us to be your missionary people and that we would never forget, Lord, that even as you were praying in the garden right before you went to the cross, you said, so you, Father, as you have sent me, so I send them. Lord, may we be a sent people armed with the good news that our God saves. God, I pray for this time in the Scriptures that it would, Lord, wreck us afresh with your spirit. It's in your name we pray, amen. Uh, Philippians, if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians has such a beautiful flow to it. In the beginning of the book, we see Paul tenderly talking about persecution and suffering that is happening to the Philippian church. And yet in the middle of it, we see this command over and over throughout the book to rejoice in the midst of that suffering, a commandment that only makes sense in light of knowing Jesus. And then you see that these trials that we all go through, that they're not meaningless, but the suffering that a Christian goes through is intended to grow the Christian into maturity in Christ. And Paul holds up Jesus as the ultimate example of the God-man who endured all suffering unto the glory of God. And from that point on, the, the thrust of the book has really been on encouraging the Philippians towards genuine gospel humility and finding their contentment and joy in their new identity in Christ. And what we're going to see from here in our final two weeks in the book before we start our series on Acts as we finish this series on humility is our contentment is a measurable fruit of whether we are growing in the humility of Christ and a tangible example of whether we are maturing in Christ. As I've thought back on the biblical teachings of contentment that Paul is about to hit on in this passage. There's a verse I always go back to, and that's in 1 Timothy 6, 6, where he says, Godliness is of great gain when coupled with contentment. Or in another translation, godliness plus contentment equals great gain for any of you math geeks out there. Something I often say is I've met a lot of godly people in my life but it's very rare that I meet a truly content person. Philippians is both a magnet and a struggle to me because I have met so many unjoyful, unhappy, and just flat-out mean-spirited Christians over the years. And, and the central message of the book of Philippians is that should not be the case. That should not be the reality in Christ. Well, in the verse that I just read in 1 Timothy, it seems to suggest that godliness is supposed to breed contentment, and contentment should come out of our godliness. So the two should be inseparable, and humility and joy should grow out of that soil. So this means that as I pursue godliness, that I should be pursuing contentment 
as well, and so should you. It almost sounds a little self-serving until you realize, and we're going to see in the passage, that in order to pursue contentment, you have to have an active pursuit of Jesus Christ. So therefore, it's not self-serving. And I don't know about you, but I I was thinking over things that I I would want in my life, and I can say in all honesty that I would pick contentment over anything. What can you do to a content person? I mean, a content person's content. You take something away from them like Paul's going to go into, they're content. You give them something, they're content. What a gift contentment is. I mean, think about it. If you were to ask for anything in your life, how many things could you prioritize higher than contentment? It's fleeting. When you're experiencing contentment, it's restful And guess what happens? Jesus is so big when we're walking in that place of contentment. When it's absent, the season is unrestful, problems seem big, life seems heavy, and Jesus is small. So what is suffering, humility, joy, rejoicing, and contentment have to do with each other? Are they all random topics? Well, we're going to see how these seemingly disconnected topics are intimately connected together over these next two weeks in Philippians 4. And I I have to tell you, as as one who practices, um, when you learn to start to preach, they tell you, preach to yourself before preaching to others. And that enables you to preach to others rather than preaching at others. I tell you the truth, family. I am the person most in need of hearing this message that I am going to preach today. I have been preaching this to myself with tears all week as I've gone over this text. And it will be hard to restrain them as I preach through it. But I hope that by the end of these two weeks that there's at least another person standing up here with me that needed to hear it. So we're going to go ahead and look into it, starting at verses 1 through 3. It says... Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, and Clement and the rest of the workers whose names are written in the book of life. So the ability, the first thing that we are going to see is the ability To have relational harmony is a sign of our humility and if we are growing in contentment and maturity in Christ. The section on these two women agreeing in the Lord seems kind of out of place until you examine it in its context. I mean, why did Paul seem to take time out for this moment to address these two women who were in a church that were unable to get along with each other? Because these women were having such bad conflict with each other that Paul had to take time in a letter of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell Yudia and Syntyche to knock it off. That's some pretty intense conflict, family. Now everyone in history 
knows that Yudia and Syntyche could not be mature enough to be able to handle their conflict like two adult Christian women, and they had to have Paul take time to put into a letter of the Bible to tell them to knock it off. How embarrassing is that? I wouldn't even want like a church email being sent out saying, tell Eric and Tim to knock it off. Like, I'd be embarrassed, but everybody who's read this book since that know that Yudia and Syntyche cannot, you don't want to be that person. I'm just telling you, don't, don't be that guy. But if you constantly find yourself at odds with other people in the body of Christ, I just want to point out that there are probably some maturity issues that are at play here. We might always want to blame it on others, but that sometimes demonstrates all the more that there are maturity and humility issues that are at play. Because I, I rarely hear people say, this guy's the one to blame in the middle of the conflict. I mean, when do you ever see that finger pointed inward? Hey, that fight that we're all, I mean, we, we can't seem to get, it's me! I'm the immature one that started it, and my immaturity continues to fan it into flame. No, most often they want to tell you why everybody else that sees things differently than them are wrong and they're correct. But if there is always conflict and you always are near the nucleus of it, then you're part of the equation as well. If everywhere you go, there is strife and there is conflict, then sooner or later you have to say, who's the common denominator in each of these relationships? Or if you're somebody that's always at odds with other people because nobody seems to get it just as well as you do and they're not as enlightened as you are, then you might want to invest in a mirror or maybe a Bible. Um, something pretty mind-blowing is these women who were displaying such immaturity were two women in the church that were actively engaged in Christian service. When I was a newer Christian, when I was going to Bible college, I remember sitting with a mentor because I was really confused by this exact reality that we see here. I couldn't wrap my mind around why, how is it that people so active in the church could be producing such withered and disproportionate fruit in their lives. So I remember sitting with this professor friend of mine that knew the Bible much better than me, and I wanted to hear what he had to say about it, because it was really getting at me. And I felt like there were more Eudia and Syntyches in the church than there were Timothy and Epaphroditus's that Paul mentions at the end of chapter 2. So I asked this mentor, how is it that these people can be bearing so much fruit in their ministries, yet so little fruit in their lives. And he said, Eric, define fruit for me. And I said, well, you've got thriving ministries. They're serving. Things are growing. They're indispensable to the infrastructure of the church. And then he asked me in a way that a gentle older brother in Christ would, where in the Bible do you see those things as a measure of fruitfulness? And he asked me something I'll never forget. Well, said something I'll never forget. He said, Eric, you need to learn to find more biblical metrics for what fruitfulness is. You know, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And I think that 
what I was feeling that led me to ask him was, I was a young man who had been around a lot of people who had served hard and knew a lot of stuff about God, but when it came down to it, their walks lacked the sweetness of the fragrance of Jesus in the middle of it. And that's why we have growing his grace as one of our metrics. Because if, if we're serving hard and, and we're doing a lot for the church, but you're becoming ungracious and crusty people, and we're doing it wrong, family. And that's where these two ladies are at. Guys, when Christians come together, there's going to be conflict. Because no matter what, a church is just sinners rubbing shoulders with other sinners. And if none of you are, I can at least admit to you that I'm the chief most of sinners. So we're probably going to spark at one time or another. We're going to, as a church, see conflict between people. But as Christians in covenant relationships with each other, we should be as committed to working it out as Christians if we're growing in humility. And then Paul begins to move on deeper into this topic of contentment. And he gives a few pointers to help out with the perspective on the relationship between humility and contentment. And first and quite simple, he reminds us that it's God's heart that you would be content in Christ. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the, the first key to our passage on contentment for anybody who is a note taker, the first key is to rejoice. Does it seem odd to you that rejoicing is a commandment and that it's repeated in order to show that it's a repeated commandment? And then we're actually told rejoice always, not just when we feel like it or when things seem as if they're agreeable to an environment that would have soil that would produce rejoicing in it. It seems to me that surrendering our joy is something that's so much more within our control than we want to give it credit for because blaming our lack of joy on something that is external is so much easier than squaring with the biblical evidence that you see here in verses 4 through 7. See, if I look at joy as something that's outside of my control, then I can excuse it when I lack it. I can excuse my poor actions and attitudes when I don't feel like rejoicing. Or I can just use the unbiblical statement that pastors often use. You ever hear somebody stand up and preach this one? Joy is not an emotion. That's hogwash, man. It's not only an emotion would be the biblical way to say it. Show me all the texts that have this emotionless joy in the Bible. And if you do want to try to make this case that joy is not an emotion, rejoicing certainly has an emotional component to it. I mean, it's not like you're putting on a party hat and getting a blower. Ooh, rejoicing. Look at me. You can't tell. But Christ in me, man, he is rejoicing so much. Even though none of you can see it, it is a deep and abiding joy. 
That's not the way joy looks in the Bible family. We see another biblical perspective in verse 5 in the commandment to let our reasonableness be evident to all. <coughs> I love the Greek translation of this term here being translated as reasonable. It is such a good translation of the term that's being used. Because when we're struggling with our contentment or we're struggling with anxiety, our reason is usually one of the first things that goes out the window. We begin to speak in superlatives. And we say things like, man, the reason that I am this way is because it's always been like this. Or, you know, I can't rejoice because it's just always going to be like this even if that's a totally unreasonable statement and is not in line with the way that God has worked in your life up until that point. I remember this one time talking to a mature Christian brother and he was going through a tough spot and, and he asked for prayer. He said that he was, he was anxious and I asked him how he was doing with the anxiety that he was feeling over it and what he told me was so mature that it's precious and I want to share with you. He said, Eric, this is not the first time in my life that I've been in this spot. It's probably not going to be the last. And God has a track record of not leaving me here. So I don't think he's going to leave me here this time either. I was floored by his maturity. Or what word could you use? The same one that Paul used in this text. His reasonableness that he viewed the trial through. I think that this is what it means when it says, let your reasonableness be known to all people, for the Lord is at hand. The next bit of biblical counsel is one of the most helpful to understanding God's heart for contentment, and it's particularly helpful when we understand that this is a commandment. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, instructs us to be anxious for nothing. Think about that. It says it right there. It says, be anxious for nothing. This verse gives us the beginning of how we practice the art of being anxious for nothing. And then verse 8 is going to give you the end of that antidote. And we'll close with that. But how crazy is it that we're commanded not to be anxious? Have you ever been anxious? Anyone here ever? I, I think like three or four. Okay. All right. So the three of us that have been anxious. So you had somebody just barking in your face. Don't be anxious! <laughs> you know, like, you'd be like, oh, all right, well, that worked. Thank you for bringing me to my senses. Um, I'm going to walk you through a little exercise that might change somebody's life here this morning. I, I was struggling with anxiety over something one time, and I went to talk to this wise, godly friend of mine about it, and he said, so, so Eric, what are you anxious about? And I told him, and he said, would you say that this thing that you're anxious about would you call this thing a something, or would you call it a nothing? And I said, it's a something, absolutely. So he took me to Scripture, and he says, but the verse, it tells us to be anxious for nothing, yet you're anxious about something. So if you're anxious for something, then you can't be anxious about nothing. And I was like, man, this isn't why I came to you, dude. Back off. <laughs> so, so I asked them, how could I be anxious about nothing when I have a definite something that's going on in my life that's producing anxiety? And we bowed in prayer together and he walked me through the next three verses and it was as big of a moment of anything that's ever happened in my life and learning how to grapple with the anxiety that's plagued me my whole life. I can remember as a young kid even having obsessive, anxious thoughts. So to be able to have this biblical paradigm became freedom 
is really what it was. And we're going to get into that for a moment. But first, I just want to ask you pastorally, and, and I'm asking you because I care, and I'm asking you as somebody who loves you and cares for the conditions of your hearts, are you anxious for something here today? Are you who are in the listening range of my voice struggling with anxiety over something? What is it? Are you able to put your finger on it? Do you have something that's weighing on your heart and it's feeling as if it's a weight that's too heavy for you to carry? So what are we supposed to do with the weight of the burden when it happens? I love how people just say things like, you know those spiritual sayings like, just let Jesus take the wheel. Just give it to Jesus. I can't tell you how many times somebody has said, this, just give it to Jesus, and I want to just shake him and say, I'd love to! He doesn't seem to want it! I'd be happy to, I don't want it! We could take this thing a hot potato with it all day long, man. Here, Jesus, keep taking it back because I don't want to hold it anymore. But how do I give something that feels and looks so tangible to somebody who I can't see? And in the times where I feel anxious, he even seems to be less tangible. Like I told you in verse 6, it gives us part of the prescription. Verse 7 is going to tell us what happens when we follow the prescription. And then verse 8 is going to give you the rest of the prescription. So what do we do with an anxiety that would destroy our contentment? Look with me at verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. So we pray supplication. Uh, the, the theological dictionary of the New Testament defines that word for supplication as to pray with specific reference to a specific event or problem. Then it says we thank God for his faithfulness and we let our requests be made known to God. I'll, I'll walk through that a little slower in a second. So, so this is what that brother did when I told you I went to this wise older brother to walk me through being anxious about something when Scripture told me to be anxious about nothing. We knelt and we prayed together. And we took the battle out of my mind and put it where it belonged. We began to put it on the Lord. We made supplication. We prayed about this thing that was giving me anxiety and robbing my contentment. And, and if you're here and you're struggling with anxiety and contentment, this may sound like a really simple question, but please hear me because it's a valuable question. Have you prayed about it yet? Because there's been so many times where I've felt like when I'm feeling anxious that I'm running around like a sugared up five-year-old at a birthday party until I just run myself in circles with this thing and then eventually I just flop and I'm like, I can't be anxious anymore because I'm sleeping. And then I wake up and I'm anxious again. And then you hear that still small voice that says, you haven't even bothered talking to me about this yet. You haven't even had a conversation about this matter. Have you ever been there, anybody? Can I get a nod of heads from anybody that's ever, ever, ever been there? Um, and then, you know what we did? We had a time of thanksgiving, and this is important. We, we thanked him for how many times he's been faithful in situations that were much bigger than the one that I was currently going through. You ever think about that when your anxiety uh, is just ratcheting up? You think through times where you're like, man, I was going through something where I didn't even know if I would make it out alive, and the Lord was faithful in that. How much more is he going to be faithful in this 
situation. We thank them that he's totally faithful in the midst of the situation, even though we couldn't see him in the midst of the situation. And that's when humility begins to come in. That's how this fits into our series on humility. You see, when we're struggling with humility and you go through a trial, it throws us off because guess what? You feel entitled to not be going through that trial. You feel entitled to not have to be facing that situation. If you are struggling with entitlement, you're struggling with humility. And a humble heart can be a thankful heart because even if we face various trials, and this is when you just start to, like, I mean, you start to see Jesus get so big, you say, I'm not entitled not to face them. What can the enemy do to somebody with a perspective like that? We can even find millions of things to give thanks for in the midst of a trial and not just after the storm has come and gone. Guys, cultivating a lifestyle of thankfulness will cultivate a lifestyle of humility and cultivating a lifestyle of humility will cultivate a lifestyle of thankfulness. And lastly, we made requests. We asked God, God, take the situation away. Or if you should choose not to, you know my frame, strengthen it so that I would be able to endure by your grace and give the grace to handle this situation. And we asked for the grace to not obsess over the situation any longer and look at the fruit of what following the prescription is supposed to be and it says and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in christ jesus so the question is how do we grab a hold of this peace of God or contentment that's supposed to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, I've probably prayed Philippians 4-7 for other people than more than any other verse. Anytime I've gone on a hospital visit or anytime somebody calls me and they're sick or, or, or they, they're anxious about various things, God guard them with a peace that goes beyond anything that they could ever comprehend. You ever pray that for somebody? You ever pray that verse for a loved one or a friend, a peace that defies any natural explanation that could only be spiritual? That's the only way that you could grapple with this peace? You ever pray that for somebody? Who am I kidding? I've prayed that verse for myself more than any other verse. There have been times where I've been in that place where I get where Rich Mullins was when he's saying, sometimes this life just don't make sense at all, where the mountain looks so big and my faith just feels so small. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? I've been in, in, in those seasons, and I've cried out to Jesus for that peace that surpasses all understanding to guard my heart and mind. But how does that happen? Is it just some magical peace that God drops on you? You know what? In rare instances, it is. <laughs> and, and those times are awesome. You ever talk to somebody that you were praying with and they were like, I can't even explain it. There was this peace that just came upon me that was just supernatural. And it's saying, praise God. But that's not what this verse is talking about in this context. Make sure you get this because who among us hasn't prayed for that peace for others or prayed for that peace that surpasses understanding for ourselves or a loved one? And the rest of this passage tells us how to grab a hold of that peace of God or contentment. Contentment comes from right belief about God. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is 
honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything that's worthy of praise, think about these things. See, it's, it's not just enough to pray and let our supplications and requests be made known to God if we're not allowing the truth to call us to right belief about who He is. Because I can still sit in the place of pray, prayer and worry. The content of those prayers before God matters for something, if they're going to actually experience the peace of God and conquer anxiety and experience contentment. Just sitting on your knees and obsessing over things before the throne of God doesn't produce contentment. It produces worrying on your knees. That's the only thing that it produces. The rest of the prescription from verse 6 is right there in verse 8. So if we look at the verse, it's saying, when I'm struggling with anxiety or contentment, my responsibility is twofold. I need to identify the thing that I'm looking at that is not honorable or true or just or trustworthy or pure or excellent. And I need to not think about those things. And then I need to begin to think about those things that are pure and honorable and just and commendable and worthy of praise and think about these things. And I can tell you that there are some tools that are very helpful for that. First of all, memorize this verse. As a guy who struggles with anxiety, I often have to go back to this verse and just say, God, bring my mind to that which is good. This thing I'm thinking, that's not true. That's not of you. That's not honorable. That's not trustworthy. That's not of of good repute. That's not where my mind is supposed to go. And then walk through this verse with somebody who is going to be adept with the gospel and help you to be able to fight to get your eyes fixated on things that are pure and honorable and trustworthy and of good repute and things that are excellent. So you put it all together. When we're struggling with anxiety, it causes us to forfeit our contentment. We need to identify the thing that you're anxious about. I mean, don't take that advice with a grain of salt. Don't like fixate over it. If you're anxious, don't get yourself more anxious trying to figure out what you're anxious over. That's not what I'm saying. But I mean, identify at least the fact that you're anxious. And if I'm anxious for something, then I'm not anxious for nothing. And Scripture tells me to be anxious for nothing. So I need to pray about this thing that I'm anxious about. And and it's really fruitful to do it with another believer. And I need to make specific prayer or supplication about the thing that I'm anxious about. And I need to give thanks to God in the midst of this anxiety for, for His past faithfulness. God, You've been so faithful to bring me through. Every time I've been in this situation, you've been so faithful to bring me through and I know that you'll be faithful this time and pray about his inevitable faithfulness in the midst of the thing that you are currently anxious about. I need to let my requests be made known to God. And then as I pray, I need to ask God to remove my thinking from those things that are not honorable, just, trustworthy, excellent, of good repute and begin to think about the things that are. And after we pray... We have to leave it with him. Well, how do we do that? Well, let me close by explaining what I call Paul's theology of the thorn. You ever wonder why in 2 Corinthians 12, in the passage where Paul is asking God to take away the thorn from his flesh, that it says that he prayed to him three times 
to take it away. And then God said to him, my grace is sufficient to you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That passage has been a life raft to me, but it's baffled me so many times also. Because I'm like, why only three times? Why not continue to ask for the same thing over and over and over, Paul? Continue to just ask about this thorn to be taken away from you. Why not just pray until the thorn is gone? And this question has driven me deep into developing a theology of the thorn because I have some things that I've prayed about a bunch of times and I continue to pray about. And the answer that I've come to based on the answer that God gave Paul is Paul needed to pray about it three times and then just trust that God's grace is sufficient in order to keep him from obsessing over the thorn to the absence from being able to see God's grace in the midst of the thorn. When it began to become something that he was in danger of becoming anxious over, he needed to lay it down and just trust that God's grace would be sufficient. And this is what I was thinking when when I was getting at the fact that he prayed three times, if I begin to become anxious over something, I just have to tell myself. It's like the movie A Beautiful Mind, if you've ever seen it. He says, it's a diet of the mind. I just choose not to indulge. You have to tell yourself, I'm not permitted to go there anymore because this thing produces anxiety in me. But, but, but I need to figure it out. No, you don't. God does. And God will. You need to trust that his grace will be sufficient more than you need to figure out the situation or how to grapple with it. Well, what about the passages that seem to suggest that we pray for something until we get it? Well, go ahead. Continue to pray in faith. But if it's producing anxiety in you by even just praying about the matter, then we need to lay it down and trust that he is God. And that's where the praying three times principle comes in. So contentment comes from right belief in a big God. Let me close with this thought in verse 9. It says, what have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So contentment does not just come from right belief. It also comes from right practice. Paul closes that passage by getting really practical. He says, take what you've heard, take what you've seen, take what you've received in Christ. Practice it, family. Up until now, he's been talking about contentment as we wage war and the battle that goes on in our minds, but now he is getting into tangible practice. And as you're getting near the end of the book where Paul is exhorting these people towards Christian maturity, we see that contentment is a tangible example of whether we are growing in Christ. Contentment is not just something we believe in. Contentment is not just a feeling. It's something we practice. It's something we grow in. It's something we seek counsel and prayer and fellowship from others to ask them to help to shoulder the burden that we might be able to experience the contentment that Christ has borne for us on the cross for you. So a couple of questions as we close. Have you been rejoicing? It's a simple question. Have you been rejoicing? I don't ask the question, have you been joyful, because of how many times it's been corrupted with this joy is not a feeling thing. I'm, I'm going to just ask you, have you been rejoicing? Has there been tangible rejoicing in your life? Are you anxious for anything? Well, first of all, welcome. You're in the right place, and you have a head case for a pastor. So... Um, don't feel ashamed. You, 
This is where you should be if you're battling with those things. And it's honorable that you've already taken that step. And I commend you. And Christ be with you. And I pray that you were ministered to this morning. As we close, I want to remind you to fix your eyes on whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, whatever's excellent. You know the only thing that fits that description? Jesus. We're about to taste of him as we close the service. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we taste of you in the partaking of communion, that we would remember that we are tasting of the one who is pure, who is lovely, who is trustworthy, who is honorable, who is commendable, and who is altogether excellent. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.